Uh, we'll get started here in just a minute. I love that song we just sang. I'm sorry, I need to stop and talk about it for a minute. That has become our, our prayer here at the church. Uh, even when we don't sing it, that's our prayer, that we will become more aware of the presence of God in our services when the people of God gather together. That's an amazing promise he has made to us, that he will inhabit the praise of his people, that where two or three gather in his name, he will be in their midst. And so, uh, worship team, thank you for reminding us of that and leading us into an awareness of that presence every week. Uh, and, uh, and so from that, uh, we are seeing an amazing display of God's work in the people of this church. So if you're visiting with us, um, I want you to know that. You've, you've, you've come uh, at a good time in the life of Solid Rock. Welcome. Uh, my name's Jason. If I haven't met you, I have the honor of being the pastor. But more importantly, you're surrounded by an awesome church family uh, of whom the Lord is working in the lives uh, in, in very deep ways. And so, um, so welcome to our church. Um, we hope that you'll hang around and become part of the family here. Um, but God is moving in a significant way. And so just one announcement I want to make real quick uh, before we roll any further. You may have already heard, especially if you're in kids' ministry, heads up, uh, we are going to three services uh, Easter Sunday. And so that is both exciting and a little bit daunting uh, when it comes to all that it takes to make Sunday mornings happen around here. And so I want to let you know that we don't make decisions like that quickly um, and just a little bit of insight. Um, that particular decision um, has been mulled over and wrestled with um, with staff for, over, for, for many weeks, but specifically over the last three weeks, uh, the elders as well and elder meetings wrestling through that, meeting with leadership team this last uh, Tuesday to wrestle through that some more. And uh, on one hand, we realize that, um, that, that, you know, that means more work for us, but on the other hand, it's amazing display of God's glory as he works and brings more people into the family here. And we know that, um, that, that there's more to come. And so we are looking at making room uh, for more folks here to be a part of this family. And so here, if you haven't heard, we're going to do three services on Sunday mornings. Uh, that was overwhelmingly uh, your desire from the all-member meeting. Uh, and so by a two-to-one vote, that was the, the popular time. And so Sunday mornings, three services um, starting Easter. Service times, you'll be seeing this a lot, but let me just say I'm 8.15, 10 o'clock, and 11.45. So if you're a 9 o'clock service person, but it's not quite early enough for you, 8.15 services for you. But if it's just a hair too early, we've got a 10 o'clock uh, right behind it. So think about and pray about which one would work for best for you. Um, but I also want to let you know we won't do kids ministry in the 8.15 service. Okay, so... Um, right now, we're, we're doing good to staff what we're doing in the other building through two services, and we want to we hold tight there. So the 815 service will be primarily for those who either don't have little kiddos in the home or those of you who enjoy bringing your kids with you to a service, and maybe you serve in one of the other services and you want them to go to kids ministry in one of the other services, however that works out best for your family. Um, but initially, we won't be launching that with kids ministry. So, I mean, we're, we're anticipating 40 to 60 folks in the 815 service, not a big crowd, but if we just do that, we open up enough room for 400 people to come through our campus on Sunday mornings. And this little bitty room and these little bitty buildings that are paid for, by the way, blessing from God. And so while on one hand we're meeting with architects, talking about the future, we want to be the best stewards of every square inch of this property. And so for us that means going to three services before we build. And so I want to let you know about that starting on Easter Sunday. Um, just be sure to keep that in mind. And also if you're inviting people, um, if you're inviting them to an Easter service or beyond, be sure you tell them what times we have services. So uh, there you go, and you'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. All right. Acts 2, as we look at another experience in, uh, in the scriptures of a church that ex is exploding and they're having to make room, uh, we're going to be looking at the nature of the church 
And so um, it's important to note just from the very beginning, when we say church, we don't mean buildings. There are words in the scriptures for buildings. They're called the temple. It's called the sanctuary. Uh, it's called the, the tent of meeting in, in some places in the Old Testament. But the word church always replies, applies to people. Okay? It's, it's people. So when, when, when my family drives by this building, this campus, at a random time during the week, and there are no cars parked in the parking lot, and my boys say, oh, look, there's the church. I'm always quick to correct them. And I say, where? I don't see a church. And they're right there, dad with this steeple. I don't see the church. And then I remind them, the church is people. Those are just the buildings that we meet in. We'll be meeting potentially in different buildings one day. And that's the joys of being a pastor's kid, always getting your theology corrected. Um, but, but, but I want my boys to know that, that church is not, um, it's not a time necessarily. It's not a building. It is wherever and whenever the people of God gather together to worship his name. And so that's what we mean when we say church today. So we're going to look at what I would call the launch of the church. And so just a little working our way up to where we're going to start in Acts 2. Acts 1, uh, Jesus has given his final commission. He has ascended to the Father. Uh, Judas, the, one of the 12 who, who bailed, um, has been replaced. And then the beginning of Acts 2, the, uh, the disciples are there, as Jesus told them to, waiting on the Holy Spirit. They're waiting for what we just experienced in worship. They're waiting on that to happen. The Holy Spirit falls on them in a powerful way, in a tangible way. They're seeing the Holy Spirit move across the people, as Jason Martin described last week in the sermon about how he loves getting to watch the Holy Spirit move through this room. And so what happens is then they've never done church before in, in an organized setting. Peter, usually the disciple that steps up, he steps up and he preaches the gospel. Got lots of people around, lots of different languages. He preaches the gospel in the middle section of Acts 2. So we're going to pick it up now uh, in Acts 2 in verse 37, and we're going to see the response of the people. So what do they think? I mean, these, they don't have a church background, a lot like some of us, didn't know what to expect. And so they've just heard their first sermon, right? They just experienced their first church service. And so we'll pick this up in verse 37 and see their response. Acts 2, 37. Now, when they, this is the people, heard this the gospel, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So he just started preaching again. Picks it right back up and keeps preaching. And in his continuation, he said, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41 tells us what their response was. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We talk about space problems, right? Multiple services, where are we going to meet? And we're going to look at where they're going to meet in just a minute. But this is the explosion of the church, day one right here. And so what we're going to look, hone in on now is we're going to look at these identity markers of this, of this gathering of believers in Jerusalem where the church started the first thing I want to look at is verse 37. This key identity marker 
of the church. Verse 37 tells us that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So let's just spend a minute talking about what that means. So they heard something, right? And when they heard this, now we don't have time this morning, but we could back up and we could listen to Peter's sermon. He's preaching the gospel. He's showing how from even from the Old Testament, it points to Jesus being the Messiah and the Savior for all men. And so that's what he's just preached, the gospel. They've heard this, but, and something's beginning to happen inside them. What is that? They were cut to the heart. Now, we know as believers, the only thing that can cut to the heart is the word of God and the Holy Spirit. And so what we're seeing play out here is the Holy Spirit working through the proclamation of the gospel. This reminds me of what Paul writes in Romans 10, 17, when he said, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. So I, I believe that's what we're experiencing in Acts 2. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the words of Christ. Peter just preached the words of Christ, and now the Holy Spirit is churning faith inside these believers. And they've never been to church before, right? I don't know what to do. What do we do, Peter? Like, what's going on inside here? I feel all convicted and, and wrestly and uncomfortable, and I need to do something with it. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, overview again what's happening here in this one verse. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, talking about Jesus. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, what is that word of truth? the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, at that minute you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Remember what Peter said to them? Repent and be baptized and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're seeing this powerful movement here, and it's not happening through a light show or through getting the right songs in order. I mean, it's simply the proclamation of the gospel People hearing it, the Holy Spirit using that moment to pierce into the hearts of men and women, stir their hearts in faith, and they go, what do we do with this? So Peter says, repent, right? Become a Christian and be baptized, and then be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the markers of the first church. So what sets us apart, first and foremost, from any other organization that you might experience here on earth? The church is the gathering of those who have heard and believed the gospel. Heard and believed the gospel. Gathering. Okay, that's really important. Am I a part of the church? Yes. Are you a part of the church? Yes. If you stay home on Sunday and I stay home on Sunday, are we the church? No. Church is a plurality. It's more than one person. Now, you can be the church with, right, a handful of believers somewhere, in a home, in a community group, or in, a, in an informal setting, as long as you're gathered together in his name, that's the affinity of it, right? Not gathered together to play golf. That's, that's a foursome, right? Gathered together to, uh, to knit and crochet. I mean, that's a, that's a hobby. To be the church, you must be gathered together in his name, right? And it takes hearing the gospel and believing the gospel to become a believer, in the next service, we're actually going to have a baptism of a, of a young lady, Tatum Berryhill. You get to hear from her and her video testimony in just a little bit. Uh, but, but she's a part of the church, and she hasn't even been baptized yet. Why? Because she's heard the gospel. She's believed the gospel. Baptism isn't what's going to save her. If that were the case, 
I mean, the moment she professed Christ, we would have fired the lights on, got the baptistry all warmed up, and just done it right then, right? Let's don't, leave, let's don't waste any time if that's what saves her. But it's not. This is simply the first command you walk out as a believer after he saves you, right? You walk in obedience to Jesus, and the first thing he says is, be baptized. So the church launches, the gathering of all who have heard and believed the gospel. Did they have it organized yet? No. Did they figure out where everybody was going to sit? No. Did they figure out, are we going to sing songs? What kind of songs are we going to sing? Who's going to lead the singing? No, they hadn't figured any of that out yet, but they had heard and believed the gospel. Verse 42. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now let's back up here because it's a really important part of this verse we overlook in English. Uh, and they devoted themselves. It actually begins with um, the verb that we use to conjugate words in to be. It's amy in Greek, okay? And it means to be or to exist. So if I said, I am a carpenter, I'm expressing my identity. I'm saying, I am that. If I say, I am tall, I'm, I'm placing an identity marker, right? If I say, I am smart, I am funny, I am short, I am not so smart, I am, anytime I say, I am, I'm placing an identity marker. If I say, we are, right? We are a church. We are, those are identity markers. It's the same wording that God uses in Exodus to talk about himself. Matter of fact, in Exodus 3.14, he says that's his name. He's talking with Moses at the burning bush. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Or you could translate that, I be. You don't have to add anything else. I, I am. I am the great I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have identity markers. He's a God of love, a God of justice, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who responds, a God who acts on behalf of the poor, a God who, right, he has identity markers, but simply at his core, he can say, I be, I exist, I am. And so that's how this verse starts. I am, or we are, and they devoted themselves. So here's the identity marker, devotion. Before we even get to the list of things they were devoted to, they were first a devoted people. And because that was part of their identity, it played out in devotion to the things of God. You tracking with me? They, didn't, they weren't just people who got busy doing, right, got busy being devoted to. They started devoting themselves to the right things because they were first and foremost devoted. So at salvation, that rebellious nature inside of their heart that was bent towards devotion to self, they've just become believers. God is straightening that out and bending it back towards himself. And bringing to life inside of these believers a sense of true devotion to God. So that when God gives them things to do, they're devoted to it. And we're going to see a significant display of devotion here. But understand first and foremost, these weren't just busy church folk. They're people who were being transformed on the inside to be devoted to Christ. If you're here today and you have been saved by Jesus, you know exactly what that means. Something is kindling inside of you, a deep affection for him. So that when he speaks to you, you want to respond. When you know it's him calling you to do something, you're much more apt to do it. Because why? Because you've been saved. They were a devoted people. 
This is what John 13 describes when he's talking about the identity markers of his, Jesus is describing the identity markers of his followers in John 13. By this, this is verse 35, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a specific expression of devotion and love. But he's saying there'll be an identity marker, right? And it'll be expression of your heart as God straightens what was crooked and makes it straight again. He takes your rebellious nature and he corrects it through the power of the Holy Spirit and the word and you'll become a devoted people. And, and the people outside in the community, they'll be able to see it in you. They might not have the right label for it. They might not describe it the right way. They might simply say, there's just something different about you. This amazing identity transformation. The church is known by the devotion of its people. The devotion of its people. Why do we have... Kids ministry, volunteers who serve like crazy. Most of them you can identify them because they're wearing their turquoise shirts. I'm seeing some over on this side of the room, some over here on this side of the room. Just like crazy serving our kids. And, and just, just know our kids aren't always the joy we think that they are. It's, it's hard work in kids ministry. It's why, I don't, it's why I don't do it. It's much easier just in here. Like It's hard work. It is. And it's worth it. You think about the impact you're having on the next generation. Kids workers, just hear me say this. We as a church are going to pass the baton of the gospel to the ones that you're teaching and leading every Sunday. You're preparing that next generation to receive the gospel from us and take this church to places that we've never seen before. Okay? It's not just babysitting or childcare. It's ministry. We'll see the fruit of that in just a little bit with, with Tatum Berryhill. It's devotion. We talked last week about the devotion of our worship team, working hard on Thursday night, showing up here on Sunday morning with the tech team at 7 a.m. to get set up to pray together week after week after week after week after week. They get tired too. Robbie, do you get tired? No. <laughs> yeah, they come through the doors here early on Sunday morning sometimes. Their eyes are all drooping. They got their coffee in hand. Why do they do it? Is it because they get all the accolades? Are you kidding me? They hardly ever get noticed. They do it because God has placed inside them an identity of devotion. They're devoted. They love saying yes to Jesus when he calls them to do things. This is an identity marker of the church. It should be, if you're in Christ, this should be an identity marker of your life. A deep sense of devotion. Not a, a flippant relationship with the church. Not a flippant view of God and worship and the kingdom and mission. But something you take to heart. It's part of who you are. Let's look at what some of the things they were devoted to. To the apostles' teaching, first and foremost. Now, let me build a bridge for you. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? Go make disciples of the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We just saw that play out. And then teach them to observe or obey all that I've commanded. So what are they doing? They're looking at each other. Hey, let's do what Jesus said. Let's commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because they're teaching what Jesus commanded. And they were devoted to that. A deep sense of, I want to know what Jesus said. Peter, you were with him. What did he say about this? We want to know what was important to him. And there was a devotion to the teaching of Jesus through the apostles. And the next thing we see here is the koinonia, the fellowship. It's really important to understand. This isn't just a fellowship. It's the fellowship. It's a specific fellowship, koinonia. So fellowship wasn't just hanging out. It was actually an identity marker. You, right now, this is the, I'm looking at the koinonia, right now. So glad you came today to be a part of the gathering of the koinonia, the fellowship. 
Fellowship is a beautiful word. Um, it invokes the idea of kinship. So kinship in Christ. It's why we can come together from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different church and denominational experiences, different socioeconomic backgrounds. I'm looking at the diversity of this room and I'm seeing the koinonia. Why does that happen? Because we have an, an affinity and it's not in golf or crocheting or fishing or it's in Jesus. So when you sing from your side of the room and I sing from my side of the room and somebody sings from the other side of the room, we're joining our hearts together to say, this is what we have in common. This explains why we've gathered together with such diversity. Jesus is our kinship. He's our koinonia. It also means harmony. Who I am in Christ harmonizes with who you are as an individual in Christ. Is there room for personal convictions if you're a Christian? Absolutely. Personal preferences, preferences, the sooner you get away from those, the better. But personal convictions, sure. These are, my, these are our family convictions. They're a little bit different from yours. That's fine. We don't have to trot on one another's personal convictions. That's not what unifies us. It's our biblical convictions. The only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ and him alone. We're saved by faith and not works. Right? It's the work of God in our lives that transforms us and causes good to come out. We, we unite around those truths. That's, right? That's what, that's a harmony there. So you can, you can have different backgrounds. You spend your Thursday nights different from how, how I spend my Thursday nights. But there's a harmony between our convictions. It also means or invokes the idea of a bond, a strong commitment that says, I'm not going anywhere. Now let's have this hard conversation, right? Very close, very similar to what we have in marriage. Hey, I'm not going anywhere, but we need to talk. And we need to talk about some things that are hard, some things that right, may, may hurt, and, and we need to go deep in this conversation. It's gonna be uncomfortable, Right? But it's not, it's not our comfort that unites us, it's Jesus, so we can do that with this really strong bond with one another. The same wording that describes a marriage is also used in the scriptures to describe our bond to one another. Ephesians 2 uses it. The two have been made one. And that's not a marriage verse. And it also means a joint participation in something. So when we come together, we're, right now what we're, we're joining together and we're participating in the same thing. Just a minute ago we were singing, we were participating in that. It also is an idea of like offering. We give our offering together. We all participate in it. Serving. We serve in different ways. We've already talked about that, right? But our serving is a joint participation in the work that God is doing, whether you're a kid's worker or you're running tech or you're a greeter or you're making coffee or you're coming up during the week and doing administrative duties. We're all working together, participating in the work of God here at the church. So the breaking of bread could be communion, could be sharing a meal together. I'd lean towards, because the same wording is used, I, I, I lean towards communion. We know it's a deep, uh, deeply important ordinance for Jesus. And so um, participating in communion together, we do that once a month as a church. Not often enough for some, too often for others. That's just what we've picked as the, the right rhythm for us. So first Sunday, next Sunday, first Sunday of every month, we take communion together. It's a joint participation and the breaking of bread, and then also prayer. And I'm going to hold off on this one because in two weeks we're going to spend a whole Sunday talking about prayer in the corporate setting. So if you're taking notes, the church is devoted to, as we see these lists of things, we can mark two specific things. The church is devoted to Jesus, right? The apostles' teaching, communion, right? Even prayer, the devotion to Jesus, and devoted to one another, the koinonia. 
Regardless of what else makes the list, we can agree on those two things. Jesus even said the greatest two commandments are love the Lord your God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. There's this deep devotion in the heart of a believer that, first of all, is devoted to God. And if you're truly devoted to God, guess what he's going to call you to do? Be devoted to one another. Devoted to Jesus and devoted to one another. All right, verse 43. It's an exciting verse. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I'm excited next fall we're going to launch a sermon series on this book, the book of Acts. And you're going to see all throughout the book of Acts, when the church is being the church, God works in miraculous ways. The more faithful the church is to being what God has called them to be, the more powerful we see a display of his work through the church. So when I see the amazing work God is doing here in our church, right, I, I know that it's because we're, we're becoming who he's called us to be as a church. And so we see it play out here. I mean, right, this church is just starting. And the, and the key theme to this, all these verses we see is a deep devotion. And out of deep devotion, God works in powerful and miraculous ways. What are the signs and wonders? <laughs> Keep reading the book of Acts. Everything from being raised from the dead to, right, to healing. And I would say the greatest of all miracles, salvation. Dead hearts becoming alive. Rebellious hearts returning back to God. And we'll see that even in the, these verses today, that the, the, the pinnacle of the Holy Spirit moving miraculously among his people in specific ways, in different ways, in and, 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 and ways that just blow our mind. What should blow our mind the most is when God saves a sinner. Should. should right? We should never get comfortable with the fact that God saved us. You're looking good now, but you weren't looking so good then. Nothing about your life that would cause God to, to feel obligated to come to you. Matter of fact, the opposite were true. We were the rebellious son running away from God. We weren't the good son who stayed home in the prodigal son parable. We were the one that wandered and rebelled and squandered and, right, and did things our own way. Only what? To be brought at one point or another to a place of humility, we realized we need dad. We need God the father. And so we've, if you're saved, you've come back to him. But you found that what? As you turn back to him, he was actually running to meet you in that parable. All in wonder came upon every soul. Verse 44. All who believed were together and had things, all things in common. Two things here. They were together. There's not another way really to translate that. They were together. They weren't each at their own home doing their own thing. They were together and had all things in common. The very next verse tells us what that looks like to have all things in common. Verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to have all as any had need. Do you need a different interpretation of that verse? Right? I mean, it's pretty plain and clear. When they say they had all things in common... Right? They had this affinity in Christ that played out in practical ways in their real life to the point where when, when you have need, I don't just help meet that need out of my excess. I sacrifice to help meet your needs if we're in Christ together. That's how strong that, that bond is of the koinonia. They were meeting each other's needs even if that meant, hey, what can we sell? Let's, hey, so-and-so needs such and such. 
we don't have a lot of extra money. What can we Craigslist? What do we have laying around that we just don't use anymore? It doesn't matter. What do we have that we still use, but we're willing to give up for the sake of someone else? So this all things in common was a pretty powerful scenario. All things in common. And then the idea that they were all who believed were together, we see that play out in verses 46 and 47. And day by day. It's a really important frequency, right, day by day. Now, did that mean they were organizing and scheduling church services every day? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, we're going to see it played out in practical ways. What I think Luke, the one who's authoring this, is trying to describe is a lifestyle of devotion. Yeah, there were days together together in the temples together. There were days where they gathered together in homes together. There were other days where they met for lunch or breakfast or coffee. They didn't have phones to call and check in on one another, so it had to be person to person, but potentially they wrote letters to encourage one another. That's a lot of our New Testament writings from uh, the apostles or letters they would send back and forth to one another, but this was a lifestyle of devotion. It wasn't an easy-come, easy-go relationship. It wasn't a Sunday-only style of Christianity. It was an everyday in the trenches for Christ together. You need something from me? Don't wait till you see me on Sunday. Come over to my house right now. Busy? Yes, I'm busy, but I'll put it down if I can help you. You need, you need, a, you need to come help you move a table at your house? Perfect. You need, you need to find a way to, to provide food for your family tonight? Let's, let's do it. A lifestyle of devotion. They were together and they had all things in common. Day by day, that phrase is going to come up in a minute. I want to look at Hebrews 10 for just a second. Hebrews 10, a beautiful expression of community. In the first two verses, you're going to see the word since come up. S-I-N-C-E. So since this is true, since this is true, and then we're going to focus in on the result of that. Okay, that's where we're really going today. So verse 19, Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we, is that singular or plural? It's plural, right? This is... Our identity marker, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That means stepping into the awareness of his presence. We, we have that access together. By the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So since that's true, we have access to the presence of God together. Verse, 20, um, verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Then verse 22 is going to give our our responses. Let us do these things. Three things. First first thing is this. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. Near to who or what? Now, it's who, right? It's the person of Christ, but then what happens when I draw near to Christ and you draw near to Christ? We draw near to one another. There's, there's one Savior. You don't get your Savior and I have my Savior. When I get close to Jesus with my life and you get close to Jesus, like, I can smell your breath. We're that close. We draw near. Let us draw near since this is true. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, right? Devotion to the apostles' teachings. Devotion to the things that are absolutely true. Devotion to the gospel that unites us. So, Let us draw near to Christ and together. Let us hold fast, right? Hold fast to the confession without wavering. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another, stir up one another to love and good works. How do we do this? We have to be together. 
If you don't believe me, look at the next verse. It's the only way I can do that. It's the only way I can stir you up in this way. Real, tangible presence. I have to be with you. Stir one another up to love and good works. Verse 25, here's how you do it. Not neglecting to meet together. Again, do we need another interpretation? It's pretty clear. Don't neglect to meet together. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The church, the church, is devoted to a lifestyle of community and sacrificial living. It's clear. I mean, there's really no way to interpret this. They weren't just gathering together to play cards. They were gathering together as the community of Christ, right? Whether you use the word koinonia or community or fellowship, we mean the same thing. A lifestyle of community and sacrificial living. Matter of fact, Acts 2 is not the only place we see this demonstrated. We're going to look at an example from Corinthians next Sunday. You could go to Acts 4 and see it again. This is an identity marker of the church. We hold our possessions lightly because we hold our relationships to one another more tightly. Right? We hold the possessions that God entrusts to us lightly. But we hold on to the bond that we have together tightly. You need something? God, how can I help meet this need? Sell that? Okay. Give that up? Absolutely. This devotion and willingness. And then the rest of verse 47. I would say the greatest display of God's miraculous power in the early church. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Wait a second. 3,000 or so just got saved. And you mean the Lord is still adding to that church? Holy cow. And where are they going to put the people? That's secondary. How are they going to organize it all? I mean, they, had, well, they didn't have the, the, the internet and text messaging and planning center and all the tools we have to organize things going on. It, right, that's all secondary. The Lord was saving. And what was the frequency? Did you notice that? Day by day. Right? So... Their, their devotion to one another and, 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 and living sacrificially, the frequency was what? Day by day. God wants to see that. There was a context here of community and sacrificial living in which he was working powerfully. And he was saving people day by day. So does it mean that God was only saving on Sundays? No. In the same frequency that they were committed and devoted to meet together and to live sacrificially and to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, prayer, and the fellowship, as they were doing that day by day. Temple courts, meeting in homes, day by day, and the Lord was saving them day by day. He wasn't waiting for an invitation at the end of the sermon on Sunday. What a miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. Day by day. Again, when the people of God are being the people of God, God moves in powerful and miraculous ways. Jesus accomplishes his mission on earth through a fully devoted church. Jesus accomplishes his mission on earth through a fully devoted church. What about missionaries? most powerful work happening on the earth through missionaries, right, is, is happening through missionaries who were launched from the local church. They were discipled 
in the local church. They first heard the Great Commission in the local church, and God, right, he called them and said, now I, wanna, I want you to go. I want you to launch out of this place and go start another church somewhere. And so even missionary working, right, is the putting together and the leading of a local devoted church. Now, does he need us? Careful, no. Doesn't need us. He can save without us. Okay, hear me on this. Think about the Apostle Paul and his conversion. Okay, God can get our attention. He can save the world without us. But here's what we need to see. Jesus chooses to do it through us. When he launches the disciples, he says, here's how I'm going to bring my kingdom on earth. Here's how it's going to happen. You're going to go out and make disciples of the nations. Go proclaim the gospel and watch what happens when the Holy Spirit begins to work through that. We just saw it happen. Does God need me on his team? No. I'm more prone to mess things up. But by his grace, he's called all of us to be on this mission. Sermon series is a church on mission. We'll never be a church fully on mission until we become a church fully devoted. And out of our identity, out of that being who we are, we will be fully devoted to anything Jesus calls us to. Fully devoted. Jesus accomplishes his mission on earth through a fully devoted church.